on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. I'm Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg and not necessarily all of the things I say on the podcast uh, represent the views of my employer. All of the things she does say that make sense are her own, I will yeah. say that. How are you, Sally? Yeah, I'm really good. Had a big week. Uh, you uh, last week uh, went to the march in Canberra. That's uh, right, yeah. Very powerful day. Yeah, so it's been a week now and I'm still sort of riding the high of the March for Justice protest. I went down to Canberra and, yeah, the whole day was very moving, very powerful. And from what I've heard uh, from people who went to any of the events across the country, it really felt um, a bit different, a bit of a watershed moment. And I, I think and hope that the energy from the March for Justice events and the broader campaign will serve as a moment of reckoning for some of the most powerful men in the country. I'm hopeful. And well, it's building momentum to make sure that the pressure remains on those people to uh, see through the change that needs to happen. So that's so important. But it is, as we've talked about, it is now an issue for men to actually take on board to uh, alter their behaviour and to challenge their own assumptions about their entitlement and privilege, which has come with generations upon generations of men building a world just for themselves. Isn't it interesting that... Big systems like, I don't know, the legal system, the parliamentary system and a lot of uh, workplace systems that fortunately we're working on and reforming, but, you know, they are historically designed to benefit men because they were designed by men. At Um, a time also designed when mostly it was only men that worked in them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But no, I'm I'm feeling good. I'm really sort of re-inspired and pumped up from those events and I'm also feeling really I suppose optimistic and excited watching some of the vaccines starting to roll out across the country. I think it is such an incredible feat of science and human capacity. And I, yeah, I feel quite overwhelmed with joy when I see people getting their vaccine. We're going to talk about that today with Liam O'Brien in just a moment from the ACTU. He's the Assistant Secretary, one of the Assistant Secretaries with Australia's Peak Union Body. His purview is Occupational Health and Safety. So he's right across how the vaccine's going to roll out, what the challenges are, what it means for people in their workplace. We'll have that conversation. And a little later on as well, I'm going to tell you about a really interesting protest movement, particularly for music fans. It's just bubbling up across the world at the moment, which is aimed at getting that big streaming service, Spotify, to actually pay musicians a decent wage because they are making a mozza from music that they put on their platform and musos all over the world are not seeing much of that money. So we'll tell you about that campaign. One other thing I want to tell you about also, Nomadland, uh, the film, I don't usually do film reviews here, but on this occasion I am, extraordinary film. Francis McDormand plays the role of Fern in this film. It's just started here in Australia, probably win a bunch of Oscars. But if you're looking for a film that will give you, uh, it's part Look, it's a fictional film in a sense because she plays the role of this woman who decides after her husband dies in the town that they work in, Empire, Nevada, closes down when the big factory closes down, to go and live as a nomad in a van, driving around the United States, chasing work in seasonal work in different communities all over the place, which is a real phenomenon in the US. Um, And she has this extraordinary experience of discovering herself and, and, and a new life and mourning the loss of her husband whilst working across the country and meeting actual, real people 
who play themselves in the film oh. who actually live that life of living, you know, as as a nomad in the sort of gig economy of the United States. So why I'm bringing this up on this podcast is a fantastic insight into working life in the United States, but also I think more generally about people who live in insecure work and have to sort of refashion their lives in an economy that puts them on the margins. It's a beautiful film, this film. It's, it's a love letter to the American landscape. It shows the dignity and value of work in a way that I haven't seen in a long time and, and not in a sort of romanticised way. And she is just a force of nature. Wow. She's, she is extraordinary in this film. So if you've got time and you want to go and see a film that is both beautiful uh, and also, you know, at times a little confronting. Nomadland, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Best film I've seen in a long, long time. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm not I'm not that into films, but I'm going to go and watch it and maybe I'll report back on how I found it next week. I also did actually see a film at the cinema this, this past week. It's called Raya and the Last Dragon, I think. It's like a sort of Disney thing. I went and saw it with my kid and her best friend. So it wasn't some social realist documentary on no. working life on the margin of the United States. It was about princesses and dragons, yeah, maybe? Yeah, princesses and dragons. Um, my partner Kate and I took our kid. It was really boring. This I is your life for the next 10 years. <laughs> I didn't like it. I thought it's set in Southeast Asia, so the the landscapes and the characters uh, and the animation, that was all very beautiful. But, yeah, just generally thought it was quite boring. Admittedly, it was designed for children, so that's probably why. My kid loved it after the film. Well, there's like, a result. I loved it so much. But um, what was it about? <laughs> and I just looked at her and I was like, mate, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. So, yeah, consider whether you might want to see Raya and the Dragon. Or Nomadland. Yeah, leave it in your court. Let us know. <laughs> it's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. We're talking vaccines next. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. On the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Now, Sally, one thing that will make most people's working life better is if we can have a rollout of a vaccine for COVID-19, which allows us to go back to work, well, kind of like we used to. I don't think we're ever going to go back and work the way we once did, but... If we don't go back to work the exact way we used to, hopefully we'll make some improvements uh, that we've spoken about on the podcast before. Allowing Wouldn't that be nice? Working from home, flexible hours, all those sorts of things. When I think about getting that vaccine, it feels like it will almost be a religious experience for me. And I know that sounds dramatic, but... That I want to be when, when you have your vaccination. <laughs> but that's who I am as a Transmogrify <laughs> and ascend into the heavens. Just the fact that scientists all over the world have worked so hard to pull together this vaccine in such a short amount of time is extraordinary and I get like quite emotional when I think about all the people who put up their hands to be part of trials like I feel emotional just thinking about it and so I'll you know I think I'm probably last on the list but uh, it's going to be such an honour to roll up my sleeves. Yeah you and I are of a like mind here that we are in awe of uh, the human capacity to to find solutions to problems of our own making often, but yeah. the, the capacity to uh, put our mind to something and, and achieve great things. And science is a reflection of that. And uh, we are not cynical about science. We are grateful for it. And one person who is also grateful for it is Liam O'Brien, Assistant Secretary of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, because the organisation have a big role to play here in making sure that the vaccine, the rollout of the vaccine within workplaces all over Australia, all different kind of workplaces is smooth. People know what they're in, uh, entitled to have happen and what their rights are and that they can work safely. Liam, welcome to On The Job for the very first time. How are you? Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Sally. Very good to be here. I think 
what was Sally just saying in terms of um, you know, it is a religious experience and going back to you know the way that we once worked. So we don't want to snap back. We want to make sure that we build back better. So Liam, at the moment, there is a little bit of frustration building at the fact that the rollout is slow and it's patchy. We're not quite sure what vaccines are arriving, when they're arriving. We will promise to have full vaccination done and dusted by October. There's no way we're getting to that. Is that making it harder, do you think, to convince workers that vaccination is in their best interest? That's right. So the federal government did promise us that we would have the Australian population, the adult population, bearing in mind those under 18 are not recommended to be vaccinated at the moment, that they would all be vaccinated by the end of October. That also included a timeline of 4 million by the end of this month. Now, we are a long way from 4 million. And what's really critical right now, not just to Australia, but to the whole world, is that we must get everyone vaccinated as soon as possible, or we risk further mutating strains. And I think what's really important to understand the role that vaccination plays is that vaccination is the only ethical way that we move beyond the pandemic. So building that trust and confidence, how do you do that with workers to make them feel like, okay, when I roll up to work, I'm going to roll my sleeve up, I'm going to take the vaccine because this is my best chance to having some return to what we used to know as normality. Yeah, well, you you hit the nail on the head, Francis. Building public trust and confidence is so critical to having a a successful vaccination program. We've seen really troublingly in late last year, as we saw the rollout happening in the US and Europe, really high levels of hesitancy, much higher than we'd normally see for normal vaccination programs. In Australia at the moment, it's not particularly clear how high the levels of hesitancy are, but we suspect it's anything from as high as 15 to 30%, which is probably three or four times higher than the normal levels of hesitancy. We've seen numbers thrown around that we need to get to sort of 70 or 80% of the population vaccinated in order for us to have, you know, enough herd immunity to potentially end the pandemic and loosen some restrictions. So it is just so important. In fact, public trust and confidence is far more important right now to speedy, effective rollout. And the two are linked. Like we've seen just in the, the reports of the last few days with questions overseas about one of the vaccines and whether it might have some adverse effects. It's actually much more, much more important that we maintain and build public trust and confidence than rush this. There's quite a bit of research on vaccine hesitancy generally, which I think is really fascinating and sort of how best to tackle it. And you're absolutely right. If things are rushed, if things are pushed, people who are feeling hesitant will put those walls right up and sort of no, no, no. And so it's interesting that the number one way to combat vaccine hesitancy or any sort of conspiracy fear, moral panic, but with vaccine hesitancy, it can be quite tempting for some people to sort of mock people who are anti-vaxxers. What's really fundamental to battling this sort of hesitancy is understanding that a lot of people, particularly women, particularly people from non-dominant groups, have not necessarily had great experiences with medicine, with the, with the health systems. What's really important with vaccine hesitancy is instead talking to these people and reassuring them and seeing their concerns as actually valid and, you know, people's workplaces is a real ground zero for that sort of communication, right? Absolutely. And I think you started off at at the top of this segment talking about just how quickly we've done this. And that naturally brings up questions about, well, are we rushing this? Are we doing it too quickly? There's a few things that are really important to understand about vaccine approval or any, any medicine approval in Australia is that we do have a very rigorous process. In fact, the world's leading rigorous process when it comes to approval of vaccines or any other medicine. 
that yes, this has been quick and, and we talked about the great scientific achievement of being able to bring vaccinations to the world within 12 months of essentially seeing this virus. Wow. So it's been an amazing exercise, but it has not been one of shortcuts. We have had the same rigorous process in relation to these vaccines as we have for others. Now, some of the other concerns about these vaccines is they're not your run-of-the-mill vaccines. They are different technologies that we might not have seen long-term health effects. So we've seen an mRNA um, technology used in the Pfizer one, which is the one that's been rolled out first in Australia, and a viral vector in relation to the AstraZeneca or the Oxford vaccine. So these are different. We, we're not aware of the long-term health effects. That being said, we have no reason to suspect that there are any concerns in relation to it. And we closely monitor all of the adverse effects that come from vaccination. I'll just quickly note that there are many, many, many medicines that science do not fully understand the long-term effects. Like it, It's not unusual to roll out medication or treatment where they're really, really confident that there won't be long-term effects, but you know, because of the harsh reality of time, we don't actually have that data. So I just wanted to jump in Absolutely. There. And again, it's not that it's unsafe, it's just that it's not known. Systemic rollout of the vaccine is important too, so that it looks and feels like it, it's actually under control and that somebody has thought through what's going on. And if it's patchy and erratic, people are going to feel like we're making it up as we go along. So the Australian Immunisation Registry, is that going to be the key to actually getting the gears turning? So this is rolled out in a way that it feels systemic, under control and thought through. The first thing to understand about the rollout is that there is a strategy. And really, in terms of early access to the vaccine, there are two factors that will determine whether you get this vaccine early and in what order. The first is your health and your age. So if you're an older Australian or if you've got health issues, you're likely to be identified because you're at high risk of serious disease. Equally, if you're at high risk of exposure, which primarily is your workplace. So we see in that first phase of rollout, workers such as those in hotel quarantine or those bringing returned Australians back, those workers in ICU units, in health and aged care. Those are the groups which we want to get vaccinated really quickly because they are most likely to be at high risk and um, of being exposed and most likely to have serious consequences if they contract the virus. Now, we think there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. And in fact, you know, I've mentioned a few high risk of exposure occupations, but we know from watching, particularly here in Melbourne, in that second wave, that there are workers throughout the economy that if we get community outbreak, are the front line, you know, whether it be grocery workers, public transport workers, indeed teachers and teachers in particular, because we are not going to be vaccinating those under 18, which means teachers are going to be surrounded by unvaccinated Australians and therefore we need to be prioritising workers like this. And the federal government does need to lift its game in relation to that. Some of those workers are still not included in those early phases and we think it's important that they be given early access to the vaccine. So one of the sort of cornerstone values of the vaccine rollout in Australia, the federal government keeps repeating, is that it will be voluntary. And personally, I think that's really great. I think it is important that we all opt in for this. But what that means is that a lot of the work has to come from public education campaigns and sort of like peer-to-peer enthusiasm to get people to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated. And so what kind of things are the ACTU and your members doing in their workplaces to sort of rally the troops? Again, spot on in terms of the government's policy. We talked earlier about public trust and confidence. That's important because we want Australians to roll up their sleeves in record numbers to get these vaccines. 
and it is voluntary. And that was a really important decision on government to make. That we think this is good for you. We don't need to compel you. And therefore, we, we want you to come forward and take it on. And we think in workplaces, that same principle should apply. We don't want to see some employers sort of haphazardly say, I'm going to impose a mandatory vaccination program in this workplace. And then what we end up having is this you know, extraordinary backlash, whether it be in that workplace or in the community. These are not fights that we think should be happening. What we'd far rather see is us relying upon those same public health experts that have gotten us through this pandemic thus far to be the ones that determine what are the really high-risk workplaces where we should require it, and then how do we make sure that we build public trust and confidence. Now, unions, absolutely, 100% supportive of the rollout of the vaccines. I said at the start of this segment that vaccination is the only ethical way that we get beyond this pandemic and can build it back a fairer and more equitable society. So unions play a really critical role in being able to encourage members to take those important but personal decisions to accept vaccination. And whether they be frontline health workers, where this is going to be a really critical control in terms of keeping you safe, or whether you're a member of the community like you and I, where we want to make sure that we're building that herd immunity, which means that there's little or no chance of community outbreaks like what we've seen in Australia. Should there be some work environments where it is mandatory to take it because you are more likely to be exposed, uh, you're more likely then to be a, a, at risk of spreading the disease and that it just makes common sense that everyone, say, in a health setting, healthcare setting, be vaccinated or they, they shouldn't be at work? How do, you, how do you mount that argument? Yeah, absolutely. And we do have vaccines currently that are required in certain settings. If you're a meat worker, for example, you are required to be vaccinated for Q fever. If you worked in aged care last in the last 12 months, you were required to be vaccinated for the flu. These are decisions that are made by public health experts. That's the first step. And indeed, they have started to consider what settings might be required. And I, I used aged care as an example. The, the public health experts did look at this issue last month as to whether we should be requiring workers, residents, visitors into aged care settings to be vaccinated for um, COVID-19. They took the decision at this stage not to, and that's really for two reasons. One, as we've discussed, there's a scarce supply of the vaccine and you can't essentially have enough to get everybody, including visitors to aged care settings, vaccinated. The second part is that at the moment, we don't have any evidence around transmission. So whilst it's an effective control and something we should encourage Australians to take on to protect their personal health, we don't yet know if these vaccines prevent me, a vaccinated person, transmitting a virus. In other words, carrying it and transmitting it to another. So that is also critical in terms of the calculation about whether we can require workers to do it. Now, these are evolving things. We will absolutely see evidence. We've seen a number of media reports about how the vaccine's rolling out in some of those early countries like Israel and how it is reducing transmission, but we really need to see the scientific proof. Because we've had that situation with other vaccines, haven't we? We've state governments, for instance, have said to certain uh, uh, sectors of the community that are suspicious of vaccines, for instance, no jab, no play. If you're not going to va vaccinate your children, they can't attend uh, kindergarten, for instance. Is that something that we're likely to see pressure build for? This is something that we would not see happening in the early early days, early months, early years of a rollout of a vaccine like this. You know, remembering that a lot of those vaccines, we didn't get to no jab, no play for many, many years. So it was a last resort of sorts. Well, it, it, it's a way to close that final gap. You know, I think really what we want to be focusing on is building public trust and confidence. And the public are pretty wary about you know governments, employers in particular, trying to force upon them any sorts of action. So step one is to really 
build that high level of public confidence. Let's see where we can build that to. Is it 80%? Is it plus 80%? And then it's a question of how much do we actually need to build that herd immunity to ensure we don't get outbreaks. So in past workplaces of mine, my employer has organised for people to come in and give everyone the flu vaccine. Voluntary, of course, but they would like come to work and we could just get up from our desk, wander over and come back again. Do you, Can you envis- envision that sort of situation for the COVID vaccine, particularly in maybe workplaces that are more remote? I think into the future, absolutely. We know for this next, you know, six to 12 months that in particular with the two vaccines that we've got and, and the third one that's due to come later in the year, that, you know, the Pfizer vaccine, so the one that we're seeing rolled out first, cold chain storage, it's pretty much got to be administered in a particular setting. Equally, that Oxford vaccine, we know that it's going to be rolled out in pharmacies and doctors, but we shouldn't think that, you know, into the future, it's likely that we're going to require yearly boosters in relation to this. And that is something that should be, you know, mass distributed through the same networks that we get, things like the flu vaccine. Liam, the issue also will be about um, people having real alarm at uh, adverse reactions. Every vaccine, statistically, there will be a cohort of people who respond poorly to the vaccine or have a reaction to the vaccine. How do we combat the panic and fear that can be generated by an experience by individuals that might be an, an anomaly relative to the wider population who have no side effects from. Because we're seeing this a little bit in Europe at the moment where the AstraZeneca vaccine is considered uh, safe by the World Health Organization and European health organizations, but entire countries at the moment are putting a stop to using it, which undermines public confidence elsewhere in the world in the viability and the efficacy of that particular vaccine. Highly damaging. Well, I think the the first thing to understand is the same process, the same rigorous process we have to approving vaccines, we have an equally rigorous process to monitoring how they're being rolled out. And in some ways, I take comfort from the fact that we are hearing about these adverse events. And we should expect that as this gets rolled out and billions of people are taking these vaccines across the world, that we're going to hear about these things. You talk about the AstraZeneca one and, you know, from the media reporting that I've seen, we're hearing about something like 37 people that have experienced blood clots. I've seen a lot of experts saying that that is more coincidence than it is cause and that really we just need to be listening to the health experts. Yeah, in my experience, scientists, doctors, those sorts of people, they are trained in their qualification and their education and their practice to speak the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, which is brilliant. But also in my time as a campaigner, when you're looking for like, I just want a sort of snappy one sentence for this video or for this media release. And I have never, ever been able to get a scientist or a doctor <laughs> to cut corners. There I was like, well, the evidence would suggest that there is an inclination more. Like, and I'm like, no, 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 just just say it causes bushfires. And they're like, no, well, what happens is. <laughs> Doctors don't make great marketers is probably the answer to this. Well, and that's and that's true. So I think the more that people understand that, like doctors and scientists tend not to be good marketers. Like they're just going to say exactly what the science and the data says, and that we shouldn't feel alarmed that you know if we're hearing about you know this trial has been suspended for a couple of days to see you know to investigate whether there has been an adverse reaction. Like 
this is really good that we're hearing about this in scientific terms and there's not someone trying to spin, there's not a Sally Rugg there trying to spin this into a campaign. We're, <laughs> we're just getting like the raw scientific information. It's really good. I agree. I, I take comfort from that speak though. I, I, I take comfort from the fact that the scientists will speak the truth. Mm. Um, and I think what's really important about this is that we are taking the same approach to vaccination as we took to protection. You know, we take the advice of public health experts. Absolutely, we should ask questions. We should expect answers. We should also not be afraid of the fact that they might not know. But that needs to be central to how we roll out the vaccine. Just to finish, Liam, the work landscape, how different is it going to look? We're not going to be able to live and work like we used to. So when you, you know, look ahead in your role as the Assistant Secretary for the ACTU with a particular purview on occupation, health and safety and the way that people work, what are you seeing? What are you envisaging? Look, one thing, I always think it's a bit morbid the way that I talk about this, but I've been really comforted by the last 12 months that healthy and safe work has been very much at the forefront of everyone's mind. Unfortunately, that's because we've seen what happens when health and safety is not at the forefront. I think what the pandemic has revealed to us is just how critical work is in our health. And I think about some of the vexing issues that we've faced as a country for over a decade more around things like insecure work and just how dangerous insecure work was, in particular in places like Melbourne, to how this virus moved. I hope the future world of work includes people that don't have to rely week to week on whether they're going to get enough hours that do have access to sick leave, that have got some of those basic protections that I think previous generations have taken for granted. Um, I'm very worried about the IR bill that's before the Senate at the moment. You know, the, the, the things that are going in there around casual work are going to make the matter worse, not better. I mean, effectively, this you know, could be seen as a COVID seeding exercise if we continue to allow um, casual work to take, take off. Liam O'Brien, thank you so much for coming up and being part of On The Job, the podcast, to give us uh, a, a complete run-through on what a vaccinated workplace will look like in the age of COVID-19. We'll talk to you soon. Excellent. Thank you. Assistant ACTU Secretary Liam O'Brien talking to us here on On The Job. Musicians united will never be divided. Musicians on the job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Sally, that's the sound of protest all over the world from musicians just the other day who have started a big campaign for justice when it comes to being paid by streaming services like Spotify. Oh, I thought that chant was particularly melodic. That was, I was like, in tune chanting. I was grooving along to it, being like, what's this protest for? It It bangs. Well, it did. In fact, it made noise all over the world as, as musicians who have had to live in the world of streaming as a way of making a living outside of performance have found it increasingly difficult to do so as the streaming giants continue to hoover up music and copyright and, you know, deliver a great service if you're a listener. But for musicians, it's a tough way to make a living and finally musicians all over the place are standing up and asking for a better deal. Let's meet one of those now. Joey uh, DeFrancesco is in New York City and he is part of the union that has uh, taken it upon themselves in the United States to organise musicians to ask for a better deal from Spotify, the UMAW. He's an organiser there and he joins us via Zoom in New York City on a Tuesday evening his time. Joey, welcome to On The Job. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. 
Tell us about uh, the protest and, and how successful it was. Just how many cities got involved and, and, uh, and what was the key message? Yeah, so we had protests yesterday in a couple dozen cities across four continents. So the first one, just by time zones movement, was in Melbourne uh, in Australia. So they started us off in Melbourne. Um, then we were across Europe, in Madrid, in London, in Stockholm, where Spotify is censored. And then we got to the States, and we were in New York, Chicago, Detroit, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all over the place, a couple dozen cities total. And the message was justice at Spotify, which is a campaign we've been running since October. It has some 28,000 musicians from around the world on it, essentially asking for uh, fair pay from streaming giants, namely Spotify. Spotify is this giant company that has uh, tripled in its stock valuation over the pandemic. Meanwhile, uh, musicians all over the world continue to be unemployed, continue struggling, and haven't seen even a little bit of a pay raise from these tech giants. Um, and people have had enough, you know, been angry for a long time. Um, so we finally came out yesterday all over the world to demand more, to demand transparency with the company, to demand uh, better payments. And this is the first time musicians have organized internationally like this, um, to put on this kind of a collective action. So it's really exciting to see musicians organizing as workers in this way, you know, all around the world. How does it work at the moment for artists and musicians who put their uh, music onto Spotify? Because Spotify would not exist without the labours of musicians. And so, yeah, how does it work at the moment? What, what sort of a cut do the musicians who, who create the very platform get from Spotify? Right. So Spotify has such a big uh, percentage of the music market right now that musicians are really forced to uh, put their music on there if you want to get gigs, if you want to get attention from labels, if you want to get interviews. Um, it's like so much of the economy elsewhere, if you're looking at Amazons or these sorts of things where they just they have a monopoly and are able to kind of do um, what they want with it. So when you put out a record, um, you've got to put it on Spotify to get that kind of attention because they're a monopoly. Um, but they're paying just dismal rates, even among streaming services, right? Spotify is amongst the lowest um, paid. So they're paying um, right around a third of a penny um, per stream. Um, that's even lower in some cases. Um, and essentially, Spotify has negotiated this kind of deal with the three major labels who also own part shares of Spotify. Uh, meanwhile, right. Spotify is fueled by all this venture capital that allows it to operate at a loss in some cases, a declared loss, um, continue to expand in the market, continue to take over further parts of the music industry. Um, and so it's a lot like things we've seen um, with tech companies taking over other parts of the economy, for example, the Uber and Lyft, um, where, yes, these monopolies drive down rates, drive down payments to workers, and just keep taking things more and more over. Um, and it's terrible for workers. And so we get to a point, yeah, where you say someone has to stand up to this. The only way we're going to be able to face this and change the system is with you know, building collective power. So what's been the ask, Joey, from uh, your union and from others in terms of what Spotify should be delivering as a bottom line for artists per play? So we've been asking for a penny per stream. So that's one US um, cent. Which, so, so yeah, one US cent um, or the equivalent of one US cent per stream which you're correct in maybe saying, oh, that doesn't seem like a lie. And it's really not a lie, right? This is kind of the minimum 
Um, but as I said, they're paying much less than that. Um, so that's kind of the core demand. And our, our message is very much, you know, sometimes people get to get lost in some of the intricacies of how these royalty models work. Our message is, you know, we know this is a company valued at billions and billions of dollars that's making more and more billions um, every month. And we know you have the money, so you figure out how to pay us that money. Um, we're also asking them to adopt what's called a user-centric payment model. So that means when you listen to artists on the platform, those artists get the money right now. It's kind of a complicated payment structure that favors the very top, you know, 0.01% of artists on Spotify. Um, we're asking them to make their contracts public for transparency because so much of how they operate is behind closed doors, you know, there's how their algorithms operate to favor major label artists. Um, we're asking them to end uh, practices like payola, um, where major labels are able to pay the algorithm, pay Spotify money for preference um, within the platform, and we're asking them to credit all labor on recording. So there's so much labor that goes into making a song, for instance, mastering it, mixing it, that often gets erased by these streaming platforms. They're also asking to recognize all of that labor. Um, but the really key thing that we're really emphasizing yesterday, right, was that, that payment, getting that penny per stream as a baseline for this company that's, you know, making so much money in this pandemic while artists are uh, suffering. And I suppose because Spotify has the the market monopoly, or you know, they have the audience, right? Like they have tens of millions of people who subscribe to this platform. So there could be an argument where it's like, well, this is exposure, right? Like you, you could, if you put your content on the platform, then um, this is where the audience is, so you'll be paid in exposure. But that's not the full picture, is it? Because like you just said, people are making a profit. It's not that this is a free exchange of creativity and enjoyment. It's that Spotify is making a huge profit, but you mentioned that record companies are making a profit as well. Can you tell me more about that? I, I didn't I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, so the, the major labels, to be clear, the very three major, big major labels that run such a big part of the music industry right now uh, are very much in cahoots with, with Spotify, right? They were um, part of initially setting these rates um, a decade ago or so, um, and still own uh, portions of Spotify. Um, so we don't know exactly how this plays out because so much of it is mysterious behind closed doors. Um, but we do know that since the streaming era, the very top few, um, you know, major superstar millionaire musicians are making an ever larger percentage of the total revenue in the music industry. So we're seeing the um, disintegration of the middle and working class of the uh, music industry. Meanwhile, these top few major label artists um, are making more and more money every single year. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whole, like, the, the rest of the economy. Any sector you look at, right, more and more of the capital is going to the very top 0.01%. Um, and we see this happening in music. And one of the biggest vehicles for this is streaming, right? These algorithms, these playlists point listeners to these very top artists um, which is part of the reason the major labels haven't been too invested in trying to change Spotify's model because in many ways they uh, benefit from it, right? Um, so we do need, you know, major labels to also step up and try to join us in negotiating better rates. Um, so demands need to be made of them, but in many ways it's kind of indistinguishable, right? The record labels kind of own part of Spotify. Spotify has a big interest in these big labels. It's the same venture capitalists throwing money at this everywhere. So we have to step in as workers somewhere and start 
demanding that's, a fair sounds, pay. All sounds like quite a familiar setup, really. And so you mentioned these sort of like top, like minuscule yeah. amount of billionaire <laughs> musicians who are benefiting, but there are a handful of those very, very rich and powerful artists who have been sort of taking a stand, right? Like I'm thinking of Beyonce and Jay-Z who tried to create their own streaming platform, so arguably still trying to turn a profit. But also Taylor Swift took a stand for quite a few years, didn't she? But she's since rescinded on that. Is that right? Yeah, I'm not sure what she ended up doing, but you're absolutely right. There there have been a few high-profile artists who have um, been resisting Spotify and you know Taylor Swift, um, yeah, notably took her music off of Spotify. Um, a number of artists, including Beyonce and Jay-Z, third title. So, I mean, you're absolutely right, right? I think the major labels themselves um, are benefiting those major label CEOs. But yeah, even these very top pop stars are seeing less and less revenue every year from these streaming platforms. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to feel sympathy with these people because they're obviously millionaires. But even for them, they're seeing a significant decline um, in their the amount of money they're making, right? Because streaming is displacing all of these other revenue sources, and they're not increasing the amount that that streaming is worth either on Spotify's end or the record label end. So you're absolutely right. Even though these platforms are directing these streams towards uh, bring money to the major labels, often these artists themselves, um, even at the top, are not seeing that money. Joe, what's Spotify's re- response been so far to the campaign? Have they acknowledged the campaign? Have they acknowledged that they need to to change anything, or have they just swatted it away so far? They are still in the phase um, of ignoring us. Um, we know they they uh, know about us because every article that comes out about these protests, the article ends with, we tried to reach out to Spotify for comments, and they didn't respond. And uh, yesterday we were at their office all over the world and made sure we delivered the demands in person um, with a big list of all the artists who've signed them. So, um, and we're working on, you know, for instance, having some politicians in the United States reach out to Spotify to have these conversations, to ask them what's up. And, you know, that's just part of the next step of the campaign is kind of also going to the, the political sphere to try to think about, you know, what kind of new regulations could exist. But uh, yeah, as of now, they're trying, I think, hoping that we just go away. And just to finish, as consumers, and some of us uh, still buy vinyl records, like we are analog people. I'm one of them. You climb out of the cage and drop the needle down on a uh, piece of vinyl. So I'm expecting that the royalties from that will go to the artist in a traditional way. Should I be avoiding listening to Spotify because of its its labour practices? What are you suggesting to consumers who are concerned about the well-being of musicians and making sure musicians get paid properly? Yeah, you know, if you want to support musicians, uh, like you said, the best thing you can do is go to the concert when they come back, buy that physical merch. Bandcamp.com is a great website where artists can sell digital files and physical merch. Some of the other stream platforms do pay significantly higher royalty rates. For instance, Apple or Tidal, though we're not, we're, you know, we're not um, advocating those. There are some exciting projects with um, artist-run streaming co-ops, such as Resonate. But yeah, I mean, we're not asking right now for a boycott of the platform because, you know, it's like calling for a boycott of Amazon. You know, it's great if you can do it and support businesses um, in a more direct way. But these are monopolies, you know, and we, we need to, to, to organize collectively as workers to you know, make demands to change the system and take away that monopoly power and get our resources back. But that said, there's a lot of better ways to get uh, money in musicians' pockets directly, like some of those news names. Joey, enjoy the rest of your evening there in New York City, and thanks for being with us on the job. Thank you so much for having me. 
Joey DeFrancesco there, who is from the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers in the United States, who have been running a campaign, a global campaign, to get Spotify to pay up for the music that it streams so that musicians can make a decent living, Sally. I think important to remember here is that nobody is necessarily talking about every single person who makes music to become sort of rich and famous millionaire billionaires, but you know, all of us love music, all of us listen to music, benefit from it, enjoy it. And I think it's totally reasonable um, and uh, admirable for a campaign to look at people who create music to actually have a living wage to do so. So when you're on your way home from on the job uh, today, you can stream Savage Garden. Is that what's going to be streaming in your car? Absolutely. Lucky I don't get a lift home with Sally. It's good to catch up with you again this week. So we'll catch you again next week for another edition of On The Job. I remind people they can uh, give us a rating on iTunes. I saw the other day that we've got uh, five stars so far. Like, you know, our rating is up to five stars. Oh, my goodness. So people who have been listening have been loving it. So keep them coming in. Uh, It's a way for people to find the podcast. If you give us a rating on your favourite platform, you can find Sally uh, by searching her on your socials and uh, have a conversation with her about Savage Garden. And uh, what what else are you listening to at the moment? Can I just drop into that? Are you listening to anything? Oh, you've put me on the spot. There's a band. The Wiggles, because you've got a five-year-old in the house. um, There's a band out of Perth called Sly Withers, who I really like. And I listen to a lot of Megan the Stallion, all sorts of stuff. And yeah, a lot of Frozen, Frozen 2. Frozen 2, okay, I'll get onto that. Good on you, Sally. Good to catch up. We'll talk to you again next week.